Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 85, the book of Matthew, chapters 24 and 25. Verse 42 of Matthew chapter 24 sums up perhaps Yeshua's most indispensable teaching about the end times. So stay alert, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. Awareness, alertness, and preparedness form the recurring theme of what the mindset and the behavior of Christ's followers is to be in all ages leading up to his return as the mighty Son of Man. Now, sometimes this admonition can get lost in our endless concerns and debates over such things as the nature of the rapture, pre-, mid-, post-tribulation theologies, who the Antichrist might might be, who the two witnesses are that appear and that are killed but come alive again, and so on. Yet, most of chapters 24 and 25 deal with the crucial need for individuals remaining prepared and alert. Because not only do we not know when the Lord will return, neither does He. All this suggests a delay of an uncertain length, so Christ's illustrations and parables in these chapters attempt to instill a healthy fear of being caught off guard. Verses 40 and 41 tell us that while fear is never to be a driving force in our lives, there is a fear that should never venture far from us, the fear of being left behind when the day of the Lord dawns, which it surely will, and Yeshua's believers are gathered to him. But what is it that is going to cause so many to be left behind? It certainly can't be only our startled surprise at the moment of Jesus' return, so something else is at play. And indeed, this is what he is going to flesh out to finish chapter 24 and then continue on into chapter 25. Underpinning it all is this truth that is front and center in Scripture. It is our behavior that reveals our belief. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We're going to start reading at verse 42 and go on to the end. Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 42. So stay alert, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But you do know this. Had the owner of the house known when the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you too must always be ready, for the Son of Man will come when you are not expecting him. Who is the faithful and sensible servant whose master puts him in charge of the household staff to give them their food at the proper time. 
It will go well with that servant if he is found doing his job when his master comes. Yes, I tell you that he will be put in charge of all he owns. But if that servant's wicked and says to himself, eh, my master's taking his time, and he starts beating up his fellow servants and spends his time eating and drinking with drunkards, then his master will come on a day the servant does not expect at a time he doesn't know, and he will cut him in two and put him with the hypocrites where people will wail and grind their teeth. Now, although the matter of the unexpected thief is not a parable, it is an illustration of the need to remain alert. As with so many of Yeshua's illustrations, we mustn't pay too much attention to the details, but rather we are to notice the point or points that are being made. For instance, obviously we are not to compare Yeshua's return from heaven to a thief breaking into a home and committing a criminal act. Rather, the point is that if the owner of the house knew in advance when a thief was coming, obviously he'd be alert, prepared, and ready to avert harm to himself and to his family. So also the matter of the owner staying awake at nighttime says that his sud the suddenness of his return can come anytime, day or night. And this quite simple illustration Christ makes, this direct connection of it to himself, because he says, therefore, you too must always be ready for the Son of Man will come when you're not expecting him. How might we be ready? What does readiness look like in a believer? He doesn't specifically say. Instead, he rolls right into yet another illustration. In verse 45, Jesus begins to piece together the nature of a believer's readiness by asking a rhetorical question. When he asks, who is the faithful and, and sensible servant? The meaning is, what are the character traits? What are the behaviors that are displayed by a servant that Yeshua determines to be faithful and sensible? This particular servant is put in charge of other servants. So this illustration is speaking of leaders and leadership. This servant's job is to give those he's in charge of their food at the proper time. In the Gospel of John, Christ uses a similar illustration when addressing Peter. In John 21, verses 15 through 17, After breakfast, Yeshua said to Shimon, Kepha, Simon Peter, Shimon, Bar Yochanan, do you love me more than these? And he replied, Yes, Lord, you know I'm your friend. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. Well, a second time he said to him, Shimon bar Yochanan, do you love me? He replied, yes, Lord, you know I'm your friend. And he said to him, then shepherd my sheep. 
the third time he said to him, Shimon bar Yochanan, are you my friend? Now Shimon was hurt that he questioned him a third time. Are you my friend? So he replied, Lord, you know everything. You know I'm your friend. Yeshua said to him, then feed my sheep. See, Peter had become the leader of the 12 disciples. This is why Jesus specifically addressed him with the instruction to feed his sheep. Now, obviously, in the illustration of the faithful servant, the job of feeding the subordinate servants, servants at the proper time was about food. But feeding was meant more on a spiritual level as a metaphor for dispensing wisdom and instruction from God's word. So verse 47 says that provided this servant does his job, dispensing wisdom, teaching the truth of God's word to those he's in charge over, then all go well with him when the master of the house comes home. The reward for doing his job is that the faithful servant leader will be given an even greater scope of authority. He will be put in charge of all matters of the entire household. The other side of the coin is also presented. Should the servant leader not be faithful by neglecting to feed those he's supervising, this is a metaphor for not teaching God's worth to them in truth. And he does this because he thinks his master isn't coming home anytime soon. And he proceeds to abuse his position of authority by immoral behavior, by joining in with drunkards, by generally mistreating those he's supposed to be caring for. The consequences for him are going to be painful and terminal. Yeshua says the person will be cut into two, meaning a tortuous death, and then in death be placed with the hypocrites because such a leader is, is by definition a hypocrite. This place he will be put is where people wail and grind their teeth. What this is illustrating is judgment and the consequence of being sent to the place of torments what Jews in his era called Gehenom, what Christians call hell. Well, in the Christian and Messianic community, it is our propensity to think of such a potentiality as being faithless leaders, such as our hired pastors and rabbis. And while indeed these positions are included, by no means is that the extent of it. Are you an elder? Then you're a leader. You the head of a women's Bible study? You're a leader. Are you a Sunday school teacher? Charge of children? You too then are a leader. Accepting the position of a leader in whatever capacity means that the standard God set for you is higher. It's more consequential than for those who aren't leaders. The rewards for being a faithful servant leader are great, but the consequences for being an 
unfaithful servant leader are severe. And remember who it is that's going to judge all leaders and decide their fate. None other than the one making this illustration, Jesus Christ. You know, a couple of lessons ago, I made a statement that went something like this. <clears throat> we can't believe in any old Jesus of our imaginings. We must believe in the historical, <clears throat> biblical, actual Jesus if we are to be saved from eternal death by trusting in him. I also said that the real Jesus is the sum of all of his attributes, not only the ones we kind of sort through and find pleasant. Just like his father, Yeshua can offer mercy beyond our ability to comprehend such personal sacrifice and loving kindness. He can also condemn us to an eternal judgment beyond our ability to comprehend such horror. Both of those possibilities represent just some of his attributes that make up his total person. In this brief illustration of the faithful versus the unfaithful servant leader, we see both of these attributes expressed not as hypotheticals, <clears throat> but as actual actions Christ will take. It's both fascinating and troubling that some Bible versions have actually watered down the final words of this chapter. The statement of the master cutting into the unfaithful servant, sometimes rendered cutting into pieces, is translating the, the Greek word Dikotomeo, uh, which literally means to cut in two. A known method of especially grisly execution that was used at times by the Romans. Being cut in half is also the source of our English word dichotomy, that means to divide or contrast. Two things. However, the RSV, for instance, translates it to punish. The Young's literal says cut off in the sense of being cut, cut off, uh, being separated from your people or, or from God. Commentators such as Davies and Allison note that clearly this watered down and incorrect translation is because those particular Bible translators, likely on account of their sponsors, could not accept a portrayal of Christ that is so harsh that it offends our traditional Christian sensibilities. This is a good example of creating a Jesus of our own imaginings and ignoring who he really was and is when it's all right there before us. Let's move on now to Matthew chapter 25. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. <clears throat> I 
The kingdom of heaven at that time will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish, five were sensible. The foolish ones took lamps with them, but no oil, whereas the others took flasks of oil with their lamps. Now the bridegroom was late, so they all went to sleep. It was the middle of the night when the cry rang out. The bridegroom's here. Go out to meet him. The girls all woke up and prepared their lamps. The foolish ones said to the sensible ones, Give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of both you and us. Go to the oil dealers and buy some for yourselves. But as they were going off to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came. Sir, sir, they cried, let us in. But he answered, indeed, I tell you, I don't know you. So stay alert because you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man about to leave home for a while who entrusted his possessions to his servants. To one he gave five talents, equivalent to a hundred years' wages, to another two talents, and to another one talent, to each according to his ability. Then he left. And the one who had received five talents immediately went out, invested it, and earned another five. Similarly, the one who given two, earned another two. But the one given one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned to settle accounts with them. And the one who had received five talents came forward, bringing the other five and said, Sir, you gave me five talents here. I have made five more. And his master said to him, Excellent. You are a good and trustworthy servant. You have been faithful with a small amount, so I will put you in charge of a large amount. Come, join in your master's happiness. Also, the one who had received two came forward and said, Sir, you gave me two talents. Here, I've made two more. And his master said to him, Excellent. You are a good and trustworthy servant. You have been faithful with a small amount, so I will put you in charge of a large amount. Come, join in your master's happiness. Now the one who had received one talent came forward and said, I knew you were a hard man. You harvest where you don't plant, you gather where you don't, didn't sow seed. I was afraid. So I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, take what belongs to you. Well, you wicked, lazy servant, said his master. So you knew, did you, that I harvest where I haven't planted, and that I gather where I didn't sow seed then you should have deposited my money with the bankers so that when I returned, I would at least have gotten interest with my capital. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10. For everyone who has something will be given more so that he will have more than enough. But from everyone who has nothing, even what he does have will be taken away. Now, as for this worthless servant, throw him out in the dark where people will wail and grind their teeth. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory, accompanied by all the angels, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be assembled before him. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. The sheep he will 
place at his right hand, the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you whom my father has blessed, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you from the founding of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you made me your guest. I needed clothes. You provided them. I was sick. You took care of me. I was in prison. You visited me. Then the people who have done what God wants will reply, Well, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and make you our guest or, or needing clothes and provide them? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say to them, Yes, I tell you, that whenever you did these things for one of the least important of these brothers of mine, you did them for me. Then he will speak to those on his left, saying, Get away from me, you who are cursed. Go off into the fire, prepared for the adversary and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. Thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. A stranger and you did not welcome me. Needing clothes, you did not give them to me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they too will reply, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, a stranger needing clothes, sick or in prison, and not take care of you? And he'll answer, yes, I tell you that whenever you refuse to do for the least important of these people, you refuse to do it for me. They will go off to eternal punishment. But those who have done what God wants will go to eternal life. <clears throat> let's remember, well, let's begin by recalling that these chapter endings and beginnings are artificial. And they were added a thousand years after the Bible was completed and closed up. So as we begin chapter 25, we need to realize that the scene in the conversation that ends chapter 24 is merely continuing. Yeshua is still on the Mount of Olives, still talking only to his innermost circle of four disciples. Now here, for the first time in a while, we encounter a true Jewish parable as compared to an illustration that can employ a number of metaphors. Now we can easily recognize it because it begins with the typical parable formula of the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven can be compared to. And as we discuss this parable, remember also that we must avoid getting caught up in any of the details. This is a purely fictional story with fictional characters, and it aims to communicate a single point, the moral of the story, so to speak. Thus, the several elements of the story are only there to flesh it out and make it enjoyable, coherent, and memorable. Now, like so many parables, the elements used in the story represent simple, common things that every Jew was familiar with. In this case, it's a wedding. This parable is often given the title of the Ten Virgins. Now, Numbers 
usually meant something in the stories that Jewish leaders taught because they usually meant something in Holy Scripture. The use of the number 10 indicates fullness, wholeness, even perfection. So perhaps 10 was considered the ideal number of bridesmaids desired for a wedding. The reality is that we could just as easily and more in tune with the cultural reality of that day, title the parable, title this the parable of the 10 maidens. Okay, whether maiden or virgin, what this is indicating is unmarried girls that still live under their father's roofs. As Westerners, we tend to get a little too hung up on the word virgin and put too much weight on the sexual purity aspect of these 10 girls. That plays no role in this story. It was a given in that era that young, unmarried girls, maidens, had not known a man. In fact, it was so taken for granted that in the rare occasion that an unmarried girl had illicit sexual intimacy with a man, that her father had the right to kill her. More often, the girl was only tossed out on her ear, shamed for life, and now she had to try and fend for herself, which was no easy feat in those days. So these 10 bridesmaids, that is, bride being bridesmaids, that was their role at the wedding, took their oil lamps to go out and meet the groom. So obviously, the setting is nighttime. Five of these fictional brand bridesmaids were foolish. The other five were sensible. Being sensible means being wise. So what made a foolish bridesmaid foolish? It was that they took their oil lamps to light the way to find the groom and accompany him back, but they didn't take any extra oil just in case they needed more. That was an unwise decision. This contrast with the sensible, the wise bridesmaids who came prepared with extra oil for their lamps to plan ahead for most any eventuality. This anticipates that they wouldn't know exactly when the groom was going to arrive, which is validated by the beginning words of verse 5. Now the bridegroom was late. So in addition to the idea of not knowing when precisely he would arrive, there is also once again introduced the idea of an unexpected delay. That is, there was this range of time, although inexact, of when one could reasonably expect the groom to show up. However, his actual arrival went well beyond even that extended range of time. Well, because of the lateness of the hour and all the time spent waiting in the dark, all the bridesmaids, what they did was natural and they just drifted off to sleep. Thus, those identified as the foolish did nothing wrong 
by falling asleep because the sensible girls did likewise. So here's another point in the story that we must not try to make anything of by attaching some kind of spiritual meaning to it. It's just said to make the story more complete and colorful. Suddenly, in the middle of the night, someone, not any of the ten maidens, cries out that the groom has arrived. Who cried out? Why was that other person out there? Doesn't matter. The point is that after a delay, and at nighttime when most people are asleep, the groom finally shows up. It's not at all clear, but maybe the girl's job was to provide illumination for the bridegroom to light the way back to wherever they had come from. And as the ten maidens are awoken by the anonymous crying out, they hurry to light their lamps, but because of the extended delay, the lamps belonging to the five foolish ones had run out of oil. And those girls hadn't brought any spare oil with them. Now, seeing that the five sensible girls had some extra oil, they asked if they would share it. No, they said, <laughs> because there simply wouldn't be enough for them all if they did that. If they shared, soon all the lamps would grow dim and die out prematurely. You know, one kind of has to wonder, how about the command to love your neighbor as yourself? How about the golden rule? See, this isn't about the girls being selfish. This is about their wisdom to be prepared. The five sensible girls tell the others they need to get their own oil from the oil dealers and not try to borrow it from them. Of course, it goes without saying, it was pretty late at night, so no oil dealers would have been open for business. Bottom line, five maidens were prepared, five weren't. And when the groom arrived, the time for preparation expired. The ones that didn't prepare could not fall back on the preparedness of others. And, and this is important, they could not fall back upon the possibility that they were partially prepared, or at one time in the past, they had been prepared. In the end, the five bridesmaids that were sensible were able to attend the wedding banquet, but the other five could not. In fact, the place where they went for the feast shut the doors after the groom and the five wise maidens and no doubt the other properly prepared guests arrived. The five foolish maidens finally made their way through the, through the darkness to the place of the wedding banquet and found the door shut and locked. And they banged on the door and they asked to be let in, but the groom answers back, I don't know you. See, the final words of this parable now sum up its point. The one moral of the story is, so stay alert because you know neither the day nor the hour.
I want to take a moment to point something out that is often poorly translated. And when it is, it disconnects us from a connection that Yeshua surely intended for his disciples to make. In verse 11, in the complete Jewish Bible, we find the five foolish girls saying, Sir, sir, let us in. In other versions, we will find translations like, Lord, Lord, let us in. The Greek word being translated is kurios. And Lord or Master is a better translation because there's little doubt that in the Jewish thought, the word was Adonai, Lord or Master. Notice the progression. The girls shout through the door to the groom, Lord, Lord. And the groom responds, I don't know you. Or more grammatically likely, I haven't known you. Where have we heard something like this before? Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father wants. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform many miracles in your name? And I'll tell them to your faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, there's this direct connection that's not to be overlooked between this ominous warning of Matthew chapter 7 about being excluded from the kingdom of heaven and the ending of this parable of the ten maidens. When the five Foolish girls found themselves excluded. In fact, they're the same warning. And one of the things in common between these two passages is that those who were ex excluded, and catch this, those who were excluded believed they were part of the included group. They believed that. On what basis they believed they were included, we're not, we don't know. However, what we do know is that those who aren't prepared in advance will get shut out because the instant the bridegroom arrives, the gates to the kingdom of heaven are closed to all but those who were already properly prepared. Those left on the outside can plead their case, but to no avail. In a larger sense, we could say that we are given a pattern to follow that demands living wisely at all times. Because should we think that we have time to live foolishly, but then later on, at the time of our choosing, turn and go in a better direction, we're spinning the eternal roulette wheel. Maybe it works out. Maybe it doesn't. It didn't work out for the five foolish maidens. They could have easily bought extra oil earlier, but they didn't. They wasted their time and their opportunity.
Now, personally, I find trying to understand exactly what the, those ten maidens were supposed to do with those lamps, in which five of them failed, a little bit vague. Yes, they were to light their lamps when the bridegroom appears, but to what end? What exactly was this meant to accomplish? What about lighting these lamps was so necessary and important that not doing so resulted in severe eternal punishment? It may be this. In the previous illustration about the faithful servant leader, the one that we just finished up in chapter 24, he was assigned one task by his master. One. See to the feeding of those he was put in charge over. One task. The faithful servant leader did just that. The wicked servant leader did the opposite. And he was sent to eternal death for his disobedience and outrageous behavior. Behavior reveals our belief. Here in the story of the ten maidens, they were also assigned just one task. Provide lamps for if and when the bridegroom comes at night. The sensible maidens did just that. The foolish maidens did the opposite, and they were left outside of the door where there was eternal death. Behavior reveals our belief. The first illustration was about leaders. The second illustration was about followers. So the exact nature of the task isn't so much the issue as it is that the servant leaders and the maidens were assigned a task by their master. Some did it, others didn't. In the first case, the unfaithful servant didn't do the assigned task because he thought his master's delay allowed him time to do as he pleased and so behave wickedly. But he was caught surprised when the master unexpectedly showed up. In the second case, the ten maidens were at a wedding venue. He knew the groom was necessarily on his way. That's a given. The sensible girls made sure they were prepared for this arrival, that it could occur at any time of the day or of the night, while the foolish girls just went unprepared. Now, if I'm correct in my assessment, then the bottom line is more towards believers whether leaders or followers, doing the task faithfully that God has given us to do, whatever that task might be, until either our grave or until Messiah Yeshua returns. To do otherwise is seen by God as gross disobedience that will result in exclusion from the kingdom. But also notice something about the kingdom of heaven so far in our parables. When you're legitimately in, you're in. 
And when you're out, man, you're out. There's no changing of status at a later time. And no one on the inside can lend outsiders some of their imputed righteousness so they can get in too. These principles of entry into the kingdom of heaven have already been explained in earlier parables or by direct instruction from Yeshua. Clearly, this is a teaching and a story that looks ahead to the end times and to judgment day, and this alone ought to pique our interest. Let's not confuse the reality that a minimal but growing form of the kingdom of heaven is currently present with the fact that upon our Savior's return, the kingdom of heaven immediately will be brought into its fullest reality and form. Right now, it's a spiritual kingdom. It lives within believers. It lives within you. In the future, it will be physical. It will be tangible that goes along with the spiritual element. So there's big changes coming when Christ's return actually happens. And preparation for those changes must be underway now within each of us before he comes, not after. One other thing that might be hard to grasp, and it's a bit touchy, but I think it's worth mentioning because there's a very good lesson about studying the Bible in general to be learned here. See, because the literary rule of Jewish parable interpretation and meaning is that a parable is not to be taken apart in all of its various elements of the story used as a series of allegories, and that all parables by definition make one point and one point only, then in this case, we have to be rather careful of saying that this parable has Yeshua casting himself into the role as the bridegroom at the wedding. See, the reason it seems so natural, so automatic for, for a Christian to read this image into this parable as an assumption is because Christianity has for centuries characterized the end times Jesus as the divine bridegroom. The problem is that trying to apply such a meaning within this parable defies how parables work. The usual interpretation in Christianity is that this parable is mostly about Messiah Yeshua being likened to the delayed bridegroom. Yet the parable plainly says, <laughs> funny when you read something, the pl parable plainly says the comparison that's being made in it is about the kingdom of heaven, not about the Messiah. Remember, the parable begins, the kingdom of heaven at that time will be like. It doesn't say the Messiah at that time will be like. Now, because the four disciples hearing this parable knew as a given how parables work, 
they would not have been looking to associate Jesus to the delayed bridegroom. Rather, the bridegroom represented bridegrooms in general. Not anyone in specific. Now, other bridegroom-related verses that appear in other places in the New Testament may offer some better evidence for claiming that Yeshua is the end times bridegroom that the church claims he is. But to my way of thinking, the parable of the ten maidens certainly is not one of them. Now another parable immediately follows in verse 14. It is another true parable because it begins with the standard formula opening of, for it will be like, it can be compared to. That is, a comparison is about to be made. Who or what is the for it? What is the it? Well, in the previous parable, the it was the kingdom of heaven. So the comparison in this new parable is between the kingdom of heaven, how it operates, and what then whatever Yeshua offers as the similar thing or action it's being compared to. Now, we must always take a biblical parable in light of how the Jewish Jesus meant it because it was formulated for Jewish listeners living within a Jewish culture. One of the underlying principles of Jewish thought is something that was taught to their children from their earliest age. God is the creator of the world. Therefore, the world and everything in it belongs to him. We, as created humans who love God, are therefore caretakers of what our master owns. This caretaker persona applies right down to the individual level. Every individual is a caretaker in his or her own right, and each is given a caretaking task by the Creator. It is within this mindset and belief that Yeshua constructed the parable of the talents, and it is how his disciples heard it. It is, therefore, how we must understand it as well. So here we learn of an expectation that the kingdom of heaven places upon those who would hope to be its members. The expectation is that even though God may not be tangibly present, our behavior should be as though he was here. Our behavior reveals our belief. The parable of the talents is quite long, but despite its length, there's still just one point to it. And Yeshua is working towards it. The point revolves around stewardship and what it is that each of us will do with what God has entrusted us, however much or little. 
And I must once again emphasize from the biblical view, from Christ's view, and from the common Jewish person's view, none of us owns anything. We are God's created creatures living in God's created world, so everything belongs to Him. Steward is a typical English word to describe a caretaker, not an owner. So stewardship is all about what we're going to do with our master's possessions. Verse 14 sets the stage. An anonymous man is about to leave home for an unspecified period of time, and he entrusts everything he possesses to his servants. Now, to the first fictional servant, he entrusted five talents. To another servant, he entrusted two talents. To a third, he entrusted but one talent. Now, before we go further, <clears throat> I want to read for you a similar parable from the book of Luke. <clears throat> now, many Bible commentators say that this parable in Luke is parallel of the one we're looking at here at Matthew. I don't think that's the case. Rather, it is similar, but it is said at another time, another place, to a different audience, and even the characters in it are different. So this is from Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 28. Just, just listen. You don't have to go there. <clears throat> While they were listening to this, Yeshua went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and the people supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear at any moment. Therefore, he said, a nobleman went to a country far away to have himself crowned king and then return. And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten manim, a, a, a mané is about three months' wages, and said to them, do business with this while I'm away. But his countrymen hated him. And they sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to rule over us. However, he returned, having been made king, and sent for the servants to whom he had given the money to find out what each one had earned with his business dealings. And the first one came in and said, sir, your manet has earned ten more manim. Excellent, he said to him, you're a good servant. Because you've been trustworthy in a small matter, I'm putting you in charge of ten towns. And the second one came and said, sir, your manet has earned five more manim. And to this one he said, you be in charge of five towns. Then another one came and said, Sir, here is your money. I hid it in a piece of cloth because I was afraid of you. You take out what you don't put in and you harvest what you don't plant. And to the master, uh, to him, the master said, You wicked servant, I will judge you by your own words. So you knew, did you, that I was a severe man taking out what I didn't put in, harvesting what I didn't plant, then why didn't you put my money in the bank? Then when I returned, I would have gotten it back with interest. And to those that were standing by, he said, take the money from him and give it to the one with ten manim. And they said to him, sir, he already has ten manim. But the master answered, I tell you, everyone who has something will be given more, but from anyone who has nothing, even what he does have will be taken away. However, as for these enemies of mine, who do not want me to be their king, bring them here and execute them in my presence. 
And after saying this, Yeshua went on and then began his ascent to Jerusalem. So despite the difference between Luke's parable and the one in Matthew, still the issue is the same. The issue is stewardship, especially in light of how the stewards behave, the decisions they make regarding their master's possessions. One of the major differences between the two parables is that in Luke's, the master, the king, gives explicit instructions that the money he assigns to each servant is to be invested. In Matthew's version, there's no instructions. And instead, what each servant is to do with the money is left up to them. Now let's begin with understanding what a talent is. A talent is a measure of weight. And biblically, it is usually associated with the weight of of, uh, gold or silver. It's believed that a talent in the first century was somewhere between 50 and 75 pounds. And this represents a huge sum of money. To give you another way to see it, one denarius was the standard wage for one day's labor. One talent was the equivalent of about 6,000 denarii. Two talents, 12,000 denarii. Five talents, 30,000 denarii. Thus, all of the servants were given sizable sums of money to be responsible for, even the servant that was just assigned one talent. Interestingly, the money was not doled out at random. Rather, the man made his decision based on what he perceived as each servant's innate or learned ability. Thus, he didn't expect identical results from each, nor did he decide that fairness or equity was called for that ignored all other factors. In fact, such a kind of fairness is actually quite unfair. It isn't fair to expect someone with little ability to perform at the same level as someone with a much greater ability. And yet the one with less ability is, in God's economy, in no way inferior to the one with the greater ability. So, after assigning the money to the three servants, he leaves. No one knows when he's going to return. Now, the key factor in this parable is that while the three servants do not know when he's coming back, it's 100% certain he's going to return. And he's going to come with expectations about that money that he left with them. Now, the one given the most talents, five, immediately goes to invest the money and he doubles it. The servant with the next most, two talents in some unspecified way, also doubled the man's money. But the third servant took the talent of money, he dug a hole, and he buried it for safekeeping. Now, the question that I'm sure came to the disciples' minds, and that ought to for our minds as well, is 
did any of these servants act with bad intentions? Any of them? Did any of them do something that they thought was going to displease their master? No. They all acted with clean conscience and out of good intent. Yet clearly, from what comes next, only some of the three properly understood their master's character and therefore what he expected of them, despite not giving them explicit instructions. Verse 19 explains that a long and unspecified period of time passed, and then one day, unexpectedly, the man returns. And he has the three servants brought to him to see how they've handled his affairs, and especially what did they do with his money. The servant who he entrusted with five talents presented his master with ten. The master was overjoyed. He complimented the servant, told him that because he'd been such a faithful steward with what he calls a small amount, he would put him in charge of a larger amount. See, I find it interesting that Yeshua's parable has the man saying the five talents was a small amount. However, the point to be taken is that this has to be a fabulously wealthy man that Yeshua was speaking about here, in, in which a fortune, a fortune as great as five talents was seen as but little in his eyes. Next, the servant that had received two talents to watch over was brought before his master. He's presented his master with four talents. And so he was given the same reward as the servant given five, which consisted of much more to oversee. Then the man, given but one talent, came forward and said some words to his master that he no doubt didn't mean as a direct insult, but rather he thought it was reflective of the man's character and mode of operation. He says that he knows that the man harvests where he didn't plant and gathers where he didn't sow seeds. Therefore, rather than risk anything, he just dug a hole and hid the money until his master returned. And the master's response was, well, you wicked, lazy servant. Now, certainly the servant would have noticed what the other servants had done with the money entrusted to them. So why would he do something so different? Well, the first words of verse 25 are the answer. I was afraid, he said. I was afraid. See, it was fear that engulfed the servant. It was fear that made the decision for the servant to take no risks whatsoever with his master's money. The other two servants took what we ought to see as reasonable, calculated risks in investing the money. Now, had the third servant taken the time to understand his master's true nature and character, he would have understood that investing what he had been given was what was expected of him. So much of Matthew chapters 24 and 25 highlight the coming events and circumstances of the end times at a, a future but unspecified date. Yet I've mentioned on a few occasions that if we could put ourselves into the sandals of those who heard Yeshua speak, then we would see that he instructs not only 
with the apocalypse in mind, but with the everyday practical realities of life as well. In fact, it was no doubt those present realities of living that the Holy Land Jewish disciples and hearers of Yeshua would have identified with and understood from his instruction far more than some deeper spiritual truths and mysterious end-of-the-world matters of the future. I have no doubt that even their understanding of the future things that Jesus spoke of were imagined in terms of months, maybe a few years away at most, not centuries or millennia. On the other hand, in these passages, modern Christians tend to minimize the practical matters of, of daily living, the current humanitarian obligations that as believers we have. And instead, we overemphasize Judgment Day and the end times catastrophes of the future, whether that's a far future or a near one. So in the parable of the talents, while the overriding theme and background has been awareness, alertness, preparedness of those who eagerly await the return of Messiah so that we will be ready and not stand before him ashamed, nonetheless, such things as using our God-given gifts and talents and abundance for the good of our communities being helpful and comforting of the ill and hurting and using the opportunities presented to us to act out our faith in generosity and without fear. Without fear. That's what we're to do at this present time. We're going to finish up with the parable of talents when we meet again.